back, everyone. This is Founders Talk, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This show features in-depth, one-on-one conversations with founders. You can tune in live to this show on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time right here on 5x5. And this is episode number 42. Gotta love that number, by the way. And today I'm joined by Dalton Caldwell, the founder and uh, CEO of App.net. Dalton, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. What do you know about the number 42? Let's start there. Uh, 42 is the answer to uh, what is life, the universe, and everything, I believe. That's right. That's right. Um, that's right. The problem was no one's really sure what the question was. They forgot to ask, right? That's the, that's the story. I've read those books. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? I haven't. I, I thought the movies were really terrible. Really? Uh, that they made a yeah, like it's one of those things where the books are better and people tell you never to see the movie because the books are so good it'll just ruin ruin it for you. So I've actually never seen the the Hitchhiker's Guide movies before. I know there's more than one. Oh, there is. I thought there was only only the well, at least the the most latest one. I guess probably in the last ten years. I think there was some some, some British one in the seventies. I don't know. I, but yeah, I've never seen any of the of the adaptations. Only the books. Now, well, we know we can be friends if you know what 42 means, that's for sure. I definitely so, do. So definitely. maybe, maybe <laughs> if we're in the same neck of the woods sometime soon, we can hang like chums and talk about 42. Sounds good. But uh, <laughs> So Dalton, um, yeah, I, I don't want to do your intro for you. I, I leave it up to the guests to come on this show, but this show is about uh, you know talking to founders about their past, about their histories, what they've been through, kind of lessons learned, uh, so to speak. So um I guess whenever you introduce yourself, how do you introduce yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I say I'm the the founder and CEO of App.net, and I also mention that I was the founder and CEO of iMeme because uh, a, a lot more people, um, at least until recently, know more about iMeme than they do about uh, App.net. See, uh, I was on the flip side of that. I yeah. knew more about App.net than iMeme. Yeah. Well, I think it has to do with timing. Yeah. Um, iMeme was – the height of iMeme was 2008 or so. And so anyone that was paying attention to the, to the web space or was reading TechCrunch then <laughs> knew you know, all about us. Whereas right now, if you listen to podcasts and you're uh, big into that kind of stuff, you definitely have heard way more about app.net than, than I mean. So I think, it's, I think it depends on the audience. Yeah. And since you mentioned um, app.net, um, it's an ad-free subscription-based social feed API kind of on the on – the, you know, the teetering line between social network and, you know, application framework API to, to build upon. Um, yeah, that's part of big part of like your most recent story. So when we, um, if we rewound back to where you began, I know you've got some schooling behind you, some pretty neat degrees, psychology and, um, symbolic systems, which I have no idea what that even means. So don't make fun of me. Sure. uh, Um, let's, let's go back into your past. Let's, for those, um, I guess what I love most about what this show offers its listeners is a kind of a more revealing, more honest uh, background and, and where founders come from and kind of why they made choices or even bumps they've hit over the road. So take us back in time to, to where your entrepreneurship or founder hat came from. Where do you think that began for you? You know, if I, if I think hard about it, um, I was always – um, so, so I grew up in El Paso, Texas, <laughs> nice, which is, Texas. uh, which is kind of a random place to be from, I suppose. But, uh, I think El Paso was one of the first cities that they tested, uh, high speed internet in. So I had Roadrunner high speed internet and I got Roadrunner in 96. 
Wow. And I believe that was one of the first three or four cities that ever had high-speed internet, uh, at least via cable modem. So it's kind of like if you, you know, what are the cities that are getting Google Fiber? Is it Kansas City, one of them? You know, like if you happen to live there yeah. <laughs> and you're a high school kid, it's probably pretty cool, right, to, to have access to Google Fiber. Um, you know, so, so I had high-speed internet pretty early on when I was in high school and, you know, was into, before that was into BBSs. And, and just internet stuff in general. Um, and so I think, I remember when Wired Magazine came out, I think it was 95 or 94. And I remember subscribing to it right when it came out. And I was just the right age where I was very impressionable and took the whole thing way too seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it made me decide that I really wanted to, uh, to one day work in the software industry and that the whole thing seemed appealing, uh, of, of all the, that something was happening in Silicon Valley and I, and I wanted to be a part of it in some way. And I think that's probably where, that's probably how I ended up from being a kid growing up in El Paso, Texas to, uh, to whoever it is that I am now. I think that was when these ideas first started to form as like, where I went, what my path was, if that makes sense. So if you don't mind me asking, you're not sure. a woman, so I can do this, but uh, what is your age then since you say 96 high-speed internet and I'm 33. high school? Okay. I'm, so yeah, so I was 16 and 96. Okay, I'm one year older than you. So yeah, so we're the same Kind of like in the same, yeah. same, same neck of the woods at least age-wise. Yep. Neat. Yeah, you know, man, I, I uh, it's kind of wild too to – to think about that, like considering we're the same or similar age, is that we didn't technically grow up on the internet. However, it was really accessible at certain periods of time, and you yeah. got access to the internet. Um, it seems like around eight years uh, previous to me. Like I had access to it, but you know, I, I grew up in a way where I just didn't have the. My mom didn't have the finances to get me a computer, so I didn't get a computer until I think I was like. 20 maybe 21 or something like sure. that so i mean yeah. i was i mean i had ambitions in my life i never knew i'd be where i'm at today but um you know what was that like i guess did you grow up with the internet or did you kind of like trail into it in your high school years i think i trailed into it i, I had a my best friend that lived a, a few streets away from me had an older brother and his older brother was probably five or six years older than us and he had all of the computer games <laughs> and he knew all about bbs's and oh, you know man. how you know how it is when you have an older kid uh, than you. And who's yeah, showing I had you a stuff. couple of those, and <laughs> they were doing some of those things. I just, I just yeah. didn't. Uh, I, I had a Tandy, you know, I had a Tandy yeah. way back in the day, and programmed on that thing. I don't even know what the program language language was, but probably basic. Yeah, I remember, you know, trying my best to make that thing dance on the screen, whatever it was. And it took me like two hours to put the program in, and finally you hit like capital R U N, and you're like, oh man, <laughs> error, you know? Sure, <laughs> huge letdown. Sure. So I, I think you're right, man. I, and I think, I think dial-up is different than high-speed. I think high-speed – this is one of the things where people that worry about um, the fact that there's not enough high-speed internet in the U.S. and that in a lot of European countries they have fiber everywhere uh, and in Asian countries. I think that's real, right? I yeah. think you have a completely different experience being on a 14.4 modem and checking your email sometimes versus taking for granted that you're on high-speed internet. And I, and I do think – it is almost like a different internet when you have access to, to those things. Um, so I do, I, I can see how that would make a really big difference. And in a lot of ways, I guess, um, I was just lucky to randomly be in a city that got access to high speed early. 
Yeah. And so since you were, uh, had high speed internet sooner, probably than most people, like, I don't think I had access to high speed until the two thousands, like 2001, maybe 2000 even, I think is when I first even knew it existed. Sure. I was like cable. Uh, is that what? Okay. <laughs> so, you know, that's when I first got it. So, uh, take us back to, to 96 when you first got it. What were you doing then? So, uh, Obviously, I had AOL, um, which is hilarious. And there was this uh, plug-in you could use with AOL. Uh, I think it was called Winsock that let you, um, even before I had high speed, you could, you, you could run Netscape. Um, so I remember downloading Netscape, and I would use the web off of my AOL dial-up connection. <laughs> um, and so, so, yeah, so I was really into the web. Uh, early web magazines were interesting to me. Uh, news groups were interesting to me. Um, a lot of music fan sites like REM fan sites and uh, Soul Coffin and other bands that I liked then. I spent a lot of time farting around with that. Um, and I think the early days of e-commerce, I was really into buying music through this company called CD Now and researching mm-hmm. what albums to buy. Amazon ended up acquiring them. Um, so the idea of being able to buy things on the internet was like super fascinating to me. Um, so I guess that's pretty normal kid stuff but it was well, like, i know why you started i mean uh yeah no music was 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 important and uh well, we can get to that in a second uh but yeah that it it definitely has been something i was always interested in uh from a young age yeah by no means let me don't let me fast forward your story i want to hear sure. i know we have a heart stop um here in 43 minutes so i'm <laughs> i'm hoping we can if we don't get to it all we're gonna have you back and i hope okay. we can make time but we'll have you back then Sure. Um, cause I think you got a fascinating story and I just, I don't want to miss a beat is the thing. And I don't, yeah, no I don't want to take that from the listeners either. So I, I really want to learn. I mean, cause it's really unique, this story that you have and the things you've done and, uh, you don't seem like a, and don't take this offensively. You don't seem like the, tr- the traditional founder to do things. You seem like you, um, like it, maybe it was a pursuit, but it wasn't like, I don't know how to describe it. It just seems like you, um, just were following your passions. And I guess that's kind of how it works, but I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. I know what you mean. And that's, what's weird for me is I've met a lot of other folks in the business and I definitely, um, some people I relate to more than others, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily the same as, uh, anyway, I won't name any names. It's all good. So let's keep going. <laughs> okay. So, entrepreneurship right founding companies starting companies being the leader running things this at what point did you realize man i could be i could do this i could be a leader i can i can build a company i can lead a team of people to build pieces of software and make money from it when did that begin for you well my my plan of going to college so so i did my undergrad at stanford right my plan was to just learn how to be a really good programmer um, and just like soak up as much knowledge as I could, because I was pretty aware again from reading wired and from reading things on the internet that this is where the action was. And the plan was actually to get a job <laughs> somewhere after college and just kind of learn as an employee, not necessarily to jump right into entrepreneurship. Um, and the thing is like the, when you're an undergrad at Stanford, like there's so much entrepreneurship around you and, the norms are so common that a lot of people that are undergrads or founders, it becomes completely normalized. And I know folks have written about this both in a positive and negative way, um, but just that 
that a lot of the kids that come out of there take for granted that you can do it and that it is an option. And that when your professors, I remember sitting in CS classes and the professors would be like, Hey, people sitting in this room, you guys are going to build the next generation of the internet and the things that you guys build millions of people are going to be using in three or four years. And the professors say that with a straight face. And when I think about it now and knowing where some of the people in that class, what they're, what they ended up doing, he's actually right. (laughs) Um, so like, you know, when you would go going to like a CS class and seeing the original Google Lego servers, <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Have you yeah. seen those? Like they're just sitting there, right? Like <laughs> it's, there's all these like pieces of, uh, of the past all around you that it definitely makes it feel very real and approachable in a way that, you know, I'm not sure is common elsewhere. And again, you know, I know that a lot of people are critical of Silicon Valley for that for that aspect of everyone thinking they're an entrepreneur or thinking it's easy to do and all that. So I think that's a, that's a fair criticism. Um, but it also, you know, I, I think it makes you more ambitious and makes you, um, more open to, to what, <laughs> to that you can do it. And that the people that do this stuff are real, are just normal people, just like you and me. Right. Yeah. So you can do it too. You it know? seems maybe the, maybe I've got it wrong, but maybe it's just that it seems like it's more accessible in that area. Like it does. If everyone around you is trying to build a company, trying to do these things and everyone around you is that's their attempt, then it seems obvious that you would want to somewhat follow suit or at least be as ambitious. Right. Yeah. It, it makes it seem like it is possible because I know when I talk to a lot of folks, like yeah. um, especially younger folks, they, a lot of them, they don't know anyone that's a role model and they don't know, you know, no one tells them that they could be good enough to do their own thing. And a lot of the advice they get from, from their, their elders is, Hey, you know, just get a nice stable job somewhere and, and, you know, don't you sound a little bit like Robert, you sound a little bit like Robert Kiyosaki uh, a little bit. Have you heard of uh, rich dad, poor dad? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Even your voice a little bit sounds like things he says, you know, get a good job. So that you can, you know, that, I guess, the whole but thing. wasn't wasn't his poor dad the Stanford grad? wasn't Wasn't that the whole point of that of his book? Was that don't go to don't go to college? I could be wrong, but I, I yeah, I've never read the books, but I thought yeah, that I was can't the, recall which one it was. I think the, the I his think he, friend's dad. Yeah, <laughs> I think he was like, don't go to college. Was his? <laughs> yeah, was what he told people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a. I mean, that's even a fun twist. I mean, do you think? I mean, since we're on that subject, do you think you could have gotten to where you are now if it hadn't been for the education you gotten? I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs these days seem to either go a little bit into it or go through just enough to bail out or have that on their resume. What's your take on that? I think it really helps um, from a networking perspective, right? Where you know, in my day, we didn't have anything like Y Combinator and. Things like Y Combinator literally take 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds that didn't even go to college or there were dropouts. And, you know, if you if they decide you're smart enough, um, then you can get you can get into the system, right? So yeah. but on the other hand, if you didn't have anything like that and you have to, you know, either earn a bunch of revenue out of the gate and do your own thing outside of the valley or be a part of the valley, um, having the credentials definitely helps. Right, and that was that was the issue with the first dot com bubble. Is it was all uh, Harvard MBAs and Wharton MBAs, right? Those were those were the people that would uh, would start all the companies because they had the resume to do so, and all the capital went to them predominantly during the first dot com bubble. So, you would hope to see uh, a difference in the systems in a more egalitarian way 
that that these things get set up. Um, so I think that I think that's the biggest thing that helps is is the networking piece and and um, you know both meeting people that you could work with um, and things like that. I think that could help a lot. So I'm not basically what I'm saying is I'm not a Peter Thiel level. Don't go to college. College is dumb. But I you know sometimes I do think people put themselves in a lot of debt and get end end up in financial hardship, um, perhaps unnecessarily. Um, so, you know, have a plan. Yeah, I think have so. A plan. I mean, I you're right because so. going to school, you can really get into financial debt. And it's easy to push that off with the way loans can get set up and deferred, and you know, you can just set yourself up for you know what they call failure, which totally sucks. And I think we could talk about that a little bit because you've but, written some posts on the fear yeah. of failure. But well, and it changes your ideas um, about risk taking, right? Like yeah. if you if you have a lot of debt hanging over your head, you're going to feel differently about risk than you do if you don't. Right. Um, so that's, that's, that's how I think it factors in. Well, you said first.com, uh, burst bubble burst. Um, do you expect the second one? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a, it's a nuanced kind of topic, but it's been teetering around for a couple of years now. Like, do we expect it? Is this the year there's going to be some sort of bubble burst? I would argue it has though. Um, so I just think it's more, it's more restricted to, to subsectors. So social games, yeah. that bubble burst, man. Yeah. Zynga's dead. Go look at Zynga's stock price. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's dead. Um, uh, what's it, what's it at since you're up to date on it? What's the stock price at? Just curious. I think it's like three bucks or four bucks. I haven't looked in a while, but it's like way below IPO price. Um, like way below. And it's not even clear if that company's going to make it. I think it's valued at less than cash on hand and assets. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. That's it's just in the toilet. Uh, same thing with Groupon, and remember, like uh, their stock is in the toilet, and ev- all the Groupon clones. Remember that was a bubble. Um, yeah, I mean everybody social. was trying to follow them into this daily deal spectrum, and then you've got uh, even you mentioned uh, Living Black Social Combinator. basically got killed, man. Uh, yeah, sure they did. they got recapped. So that. Again, if you look at that as a bubble of of people excited about building Groupon clones, yeah, yeah. The, the bubble burst. That's a good Part, point. So it's been like uh, just kind of spread out rather than one big hit. It's more like smaller, um, like I kind of think of it like maybe a, a comet hit near Earth. Instead of one big comet, it's kind of burst into a bunch of little comets. And I don't know. That's a bad analogy. But nonetheless, well, I, the, I, I think you know, so, right? The so impact it, is less. Yeah, it's it's constrained to specific subsectors of startups, right? Absolutely. But yeah, if you're trying to start a social gaming company or you're trying to start a Groupon clone, good luck. <laughs> um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough out there. It's kind of funny too because I used to run this show called The Web 2.0 Show. It's, uh, if, if you're listening, you can actually go find this right now on the web. It's still up there at web20show.com. And uh, I actually talked to, um, to the founder of Groupon. like Andrew? Yeah, Andrew sure. Mason, yeah. and I talked to him before they even got that initial twenty-five million in funding. Like they were still sitting with like three million in funding, that that initial Series A or their angel round that they had uh, raised, and they were it's kind of wild because they were nobodies back then. And it's just their whole history and how they've led everybody in there. And then you got Living Social and what they've done, and like you'd mentioned, everybody they kind of followed them up and how it's just kind of imploded on themselves but uh i mean groupon might have enough cash on hand to make it but as a as an ecosystem yeah it's not it's it's dead the bubble burst right what do you think about um 
I, I don't want to harp on this too long, but just if you don't want to talk about it, it's cool with me. Um, just when they let him go as CEO, how do you think that played out for him? Like since he was the founder, the inceptor of this idea, grew it, built it, and then like this last little bit, he was finally let go as CEO. I I actually think he was relieved. Um, I think it was really affecting his mental and physical health. And he put on a lot of weight and wasn't healthy. Um, and uh, like I know some people that know him really well. And I've emailed with a guy. Like I know the yeah. guy. And uh, I like Andrew, honestly. I, I'm, yeah. I, I'm super – I got mad respect for Andrew. He's awesome. And so I think that he actually was relieved because – if he quit, that would be him letting everybody down. Yeah. But because the board let him go, he can okay. at least he can hold his head high that he did. He gave it a hundred percent, and maybe yeah. he made, maybe he made mistakes along the way, but he didn't he didn't sell out the the people that followed him along the way. And I I imagine that his stress level is much better than it was before. Because yeah, he was he wasn't looking good, man. Like that's it's tough. That's. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, hopefully one day, not so much that I wish this pressure upon you, but hopefully one day you're in a position that you have um, the the weight. On, I, I don't know if I wish that upon you. The, I mean, it's a lot of, yeah, it's a big deal that he was dealing me. with. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was seriously dealing with a lot. And I can, I can't even imagine being in that position. So being a founder, you take that on. I mean, think about that. You, you know, you start an idea and your original thoughts about the direction and the road you're heading are are about this dream you're pursuing, this great idea, this thing you want to see get done. But at the end of that road, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that, you know, leading that and the people that rely upon you to 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 lead the team of people necessary to build and sustain. Yeah, I mean, if there's one piece of advice I always give first time founders or people that want to be founders, they people always think that raising money is the yardstick yeah. of how successful you are. And that once you raise that, you know, million bucks or whatever, whatever you, whatever you're trying to do, that once that happens, it'll all be easy. And you can hire a staff and da 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 delegate. Like they have all these hilarious misperceptions of what it's like. And the tough love there is that every time you do that, you're raising the stakes, right? And it's actually it, get, it gets harder, right? The bigger your staff gets, uh, I mean, got up to 95 employees. Okay, <laughs> um, the bigger your staff gets, and the more money you raise and the more deals you do and the more successful you are, the harder it gets. And so that's not to say you shouldn't try to be successful. It's just that I swear so many people have this idea that like, you know, when you read an article about someone raising money or, or whatever, that like they're on easy street. And if only you could do that too, you'd be on easy street also. Right. And like, that's just not how it works, man. The microscope has just zoomed in further. <laughs> oh yeah. Like it's, <laughs> you know, it's, well, it let's, couldn't let's be talk about more that opposite bit, of that. Sure. Let's talk about um, – well, let's go towards that at least. Um, let's open up the door to iMemeApp.net, some things you've actually started yourself. So you mentioned REM. You're a big fan of that, uh, BBS, kind of digging fan pages and stuff. What made you start iMeme? Yeah, so so the backstory on iMeme is that um, I was I – was, uh, I learned how to program and I knew a bunch of folks uh, at Stanford and these these guys that I knew started working on this Stanford only social network called InCircle and you know it's in Wikipedia and stuff if you if you look it up it predated Facebook by I think 2 or 3 years and it was a lot like Facebook uh, 
and the guys, it was a grad student, another guy that was my friend that lived in my dorm that was working on it. I was, I was pretty interested in, in checking it out. And, uh, I actually ended up helping them out, um, right after I graduated where I was, I guess I was effectively employee number one. And what was interesting is one of the founders, um, had a full-time job at Google and this was Google circa 2002. So it was much smaller than, yeah, uh, different Google then. Yeah. Well, and like, it's a pretty big, it was a really big deal to have a job at Google then. Um, and is and, it not a big deal anymore? I mean, there's, Less? there's thousands and thousands and thousands of Google employees who cares, right. Versus like, if there's a hundred Google employees and you know, you have a PhD from Stanford, like, right. Then that's it, means, a big deal. it means like, Whoa, this guy, you know, it's a, that's a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. So, so, he had a day job at Google and I was basically the programmer trying to, to write it. And, uh, what's so fascinating about that story, I'll try to not go too long into it, but, um, there were angel investors. And when they saw this traffic on the Stanford campus, the, the idea was to try to go to more schools. And instead of doing, Hey, we're going to launch this for free at more and more schools. The idea was to sell this to the alumni organizations at every other college and charge the alumni organization so that way it would be a value add for alumni of the school. So basically, I worked at a company that was Facebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> With a terrible, terrible execution. Like, just brain They dead. charged. Yeah. Well, not charged, <laughs> but you had to go through a sales cycle of talking to an alumni organization. It wasn't just charging. It was yeah. like, it was direction. like, let's get on the phone with the alumni organization for six months. Um, so, so anyway, it was super popular, uh, at, at Stanford. And, uh, the, the funny part of that story is that the, the guy that worked at Google ended up getting exasperated about the whole thing and wanted to, to just do like a, an overall free site, more like Friendster. And this is right when Friendster was starting to come out and he, yeah, he ended up having to falling out and I wasn't really a party to it. And mysteriously he ended up launching a similar product at Google in his, in his, uh, 20% time quote unquote, which seems impossible. Um, and that product was called Orkut, which is his first name. Uh, did you ever use Orkut? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I'm, I never used it, but uh, I've definitely <laughs> heard of it. Yeah. So that was Orkut and it launched in, you know, that was seen as Google social network and all this other stuff. And that's about the time that I got out of there because, uh, the, the, the founder issues between the two. And that's actually what convinced me I could do my own thing was that I was effectively doing all of the parts of what it took to run a website and to, to ship code. Um, and you just didn't wear the hat. I just didn't wear the hat. And right at that time, um, I wanted to just see what the options were. And so I, I interviewed at Friendster, uh, when they were 15 people, <laughs> and this was at the height of their fame. I interviewed at LinkedIn when they were 12 people. And that's when I met Reid Hoffman. Um, and, uh, just those guys were so worried about scaling and, uh, things like that. I decided to be more helpful to just do my own thing. And I had so little to lose at that point. Why not? Um, and that was, that was the, that was how I ended up starting, uh, I mean, uh, what year that was, uh, that was like December of Oh three. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess, you know, having nothing to lose gave you, uh, gave you the courage to just step out there. And, and so not? what were right? the early days of iMeme like then? So I, I guess what was the business sure. model, I suppose, of iMeme? So the idea was 
at the time, all anyone was worried about on the tech side of proto social networking, it wasn't, it was barely even called social networking then, um, was scaling, right? Everyone was using MySQL. Friendster was falling over. uh, MySpace just launched. Like there was, there was actually technical issues for it. And so the idea of iMeme was instead of having a web-based service, um, whether we could build a hybrid peer-to-peer service where a lot of the a lot of the stuff ran on the desktop, um, on a hybrid peer-to-peer architecture, kind of like Skype, yeah. where where your social network you're able to chat with people, um, you're able to send them files, you're able to do all this stuff, and instead of it all getting bottlenecked at the server side, which obviously at the time <laughs> was the big problem with all these things. Um, you know, we could, we could do it on the client side. Uh, and so that was in a, in a nutshell, that was, that was what we set out to do. Hmm. Yeah. But I mean, is built around music though, right? That came later. I came later. Okay. So uh, there was no such thing as a pivot then, but what was it for you? Well, one of, uh, we knew at that point, we knew a lot of the, the Napster folks cause they were, they all moved out here. Right. And our, I had a board member um, who, whose name is Ali Idar, who was employee number one of the original Napster. And he was the server engineer that worked with Fanning to make the whole thing scale. Um, so the, the original Napster D server he wrote is all C++. He has all sorts of fantastic stories about, about trying to make Napster scale. Uh, and uh, he was at the time working with Fanning on this company called Snowcap. And Snowcap was what Fanning started right after uh, Napster was shut down by the courts, uh, where it was, a, it was a content registry of all of the licensed music. Um, and the idea was to make a legal version of Napster. Um, if, this, if you installed the Snowcap plugin on a peer-to-peer client, it would look at all the MP3s that were flowing through it and fingerprint them and be able to tell who the rights holder was. And then the rights holder can, could opt in to different business models, either streaming or downloads or just free. And so it was this really super ambitious idea. And that's what Ollie, Ollie was the COO of that company as well as on our board. Um, so, so we, we talked about things back and forth a lot and, you know, probably a, a year and a half or two years into I mean, um, was right about when YouTube launched and we saw YouTube, I saw YouTube the week it launched maybe two or three days, uh, like, Chad and Steve were just down the street and uh, we thought it was pretty weird what they were doing with YouTube because uh, there was obviously copyrighted content on it and it seemed like a pretty, it seemed pretty obvious that YouTube was going to get shut down very quickly by content owners. Um, And so then it occurred, it occurred to me that what we could do is take this Napster technology or sorry, the snowcap technology that existed that did fingerprinting but instead of requiring it to be installed on every user's computer, which had a lot of friction, and there was a bunch of other issues why it wasn't working that I don't even need to get into, yeah. um, we could instead run something on the server side where people could start uploading music to, to the cloud. And on the back end, we would run the fingerprinter as part of our processing queue. And depending on what the rights holder opted into or opted out of, have it be set for for streaming, um, or have it be clipped. And Hmm. so it was a way, basically it was a way to get the benefits of the virality of YouTube and also have a business model that would work for content owners. Uh, Because there was no, there was no such thing as legal streaming at that point. 
Um, and so that was how we ended up working on it was my awareness that the snowcap technology existed and was being underutilized and the, the insight that we could put it on the server side and put it in the cloud was the big, was the big insight. So for, I mean, even me and, and those who are not super, super familiar with what everything that IMEME did, what, what was the main precipice behind it? To, I mean, it's an online music service, but beyond that, where did it go? Well, we grew, we, we grew a lot off of MySpace. So IMEME itself, we had, we had 30 million registered users. We were the 70, we are Alexa 75 in the world, the 75th most traffic site in the world. Um, we saw, we had these embeddable widgets and through our widgets, we serve music to over a hundred million unique IPs per month. Um, so, you know, if you've seen Groove Shark, Groove Shark is an iMeme clone that popped up after iMeme went away. Um, I don't know if, yeah, you can go look at the, no, I'm, I'm, I was yeah. going to ask you about how you yeah. thought about other, <laughs> oh, um, I don't really care. I'm just saying like, if you've used Groove Shark, that's what I'm like. Those were some dudes in Florida that, you know, yeah. liked what we had going on or something. So, um, yeah, so there, there were several services, but the idea of an embeddable music player on MySpace that had a playlist in it, that was, that was what we did. That was like, you. That, okay. that was, a, right, like any, you know, there's obviously the service is long since dead and gone away, so you see it manifested in different ways that have nothing to do with us. But the, the idea that, oh, here's an embeddable playlist player with some music in it that I can embed in my blog or on my, my, my MySpace, that was it, and that was our distribution strategy. And we, that was, you know, we rode that to the moon. Um, so it got really, really, really big. And since you mentioned the moon, the moon was a million bucks. What do you mean? In terms of raising money? <laughs> no, I mean, the, the moon was when you got acquired by MySpace and you got, to, you got to take an exit. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we raised way more money than a million bucks. So that, I saw zero dollars from that. Oh, man. I didn't even know, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, dude. Like, we, that, so, was not a, that was not a success. That was not a good day. No, it's just it wasn't a success. Uh, and that's, that's, that's what happens sometimes. Um, I know we got about 18 minutes because you said you do have a hard stop. So we're still hard stop yeah, right at the hour. We could probably go five or 10 over at most. Okay. I just have a meeting I got to go to. Yeah. Yeah. My, my biggest thing is I got a, I got a number of questions and they could go uh, sure. lengthy with, with and around app.net. So I, I wanted to kind of key off of a, a lot of different topics and hopefully we can um, pull them sure. in, in in time. But Okay, so 2009, you you sell iMeme to MySpace, right? That was, yeah, 2009, end of 2009. So 2010, not long after, it was like end of that year. Um, or sorry, no, it was 2012 uh, when you launched app.net. Yep. August 2012. So you basically, what did you do in that, that time span of those two years, almost two years? Uh, well, the the story is that the the plan was to go work for this guy, Owen Vanata, who was the CEO of MySpace. He's previously the CEO of Facebook. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was hired by Rupert Murdoch to run MySpace. Um, and he was the guy that I, you know, I was directly talking to and was, was working with. Uh, and so right after we got acquired, but before I signed my permanent paperwork, uh, he was let go by Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> so that was when MySpace completely fell apart. You can Google this, but like, yeah. there was, you know, it was like he was the, he was the guy that was going to come save the day and he was acquiring talent. I mean, basically doing what Marissa Mayer is doing at Yahoo right now, right? Where she's trying yeah. to bring it, she's trying to like assemble something. <laughs> like she, it's like a turnaround story. Um, and so, so yeah, so Owen brought it, he bought the I like guys, he bought us. 
um, he was trying to do, you know, he was, he was giving it a good try. Uh, and so when he was let go, we decided not to stick around because it was clear they were going to shut down the San Francisco office, which they did. And, you know, it, it got a lot worse, uh, at that place in the, you know, 12 months past then. So I think we made the right call. Um, so that's when we started the current company, uh, myself and Brian Berg, Brian yeah, mixed media labs, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I love Brian, that name by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Such um, a cool name. Yeah. We just, we needed a name. So it wasn't meant to be consumer friendly. It was just, that was what <laughs> I liked the name for, for personal reasons. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh so so he was my CTO at IMEAM, and we'd worked together for the past six or seven years. And I think that's really key with co-founders is you want people that you've worked with for a, a long time yeah. and that you have a good working chemistry with because you can end up with a, a lot of co-founder issues with, with if, if you don't know the people that well or if you haven't worked with them before. Um, so we started this company. We started Mixed Media Labs. And almost two or three months after starting it, we, we, built, we started working on mobile applications. So, so the key – the re, the idea behind Mixed Media Labs was we're going to build several mobile applications. Uh, what we saw at iMeme was that uh, a lot of our user growth and usage was increasingly more and more via our iPhone and Android apps and not on our website. And so it's the same thing that's kind of screwing uh, Facebook now and other, mobile, uh, other web companies is that as all of your user base shifts to mobile – uh, it upends your business model <laughs> and you have to rewrite a ton of stuff. So, yeah. so what we were going to do with the company is like write a series of mobile apps and kind of treat them as experiments and just see, see what sticks. Um, so our first, the first app we built was called Pick Please, which was a mobile photo sharing app. And it's pretty funny because we were just trying to build something that, um, that we thought was cool um, and that there was a hole in the space for for like a mobile photo sharing application. And this predated Instagram and path and color and everything by a good nine or 10 months. And, uh, so we built it and, and shipped it and, you know, got several hundred thousand users, (laughs) right? Like I would call it, I would call it a success. Um, and then for whatever reason, everyone decided that, um, that was the next trend to jump on. And we saw uh, Instagram launch and color raised freaking $45 million and path. It was just like hilarious. I don't know. Like it's, it was just weird that I remember people being like, Oh man, mobile photo sharing. That's a terrible idea. No one wants that. Like, You're like get off my lawn. Well, no, it's not that. It's just that I was trying to justify that there was, that anyone was going to care and there was some consumer demand for it. Right. And like, yeah, like there's consumer, you know, <laughs> we, we clearly didn't, uh, win that one from a product perspective and that's, that's cool. You know, can't win them all, but at least I feel vindicated that there was a market there, right? Yeah. There was some, there was something there, uh, that was worth doing. Um, and so that's what we, that was the first, I guess, year or so of mixed media labs. Uh, and we actually spun it off. Um, what year did, did you start mixed media labs? What year was it that you started that? It was, I don't know what uh, March of 2010 or so okay. February, so not, not too long after the yeah basically okay. right after the right after that more or less um, and and yeah the uh, having done this before I wanted to preserve as much capital as possible and there were some people that wanted to buy pick please for me and run it so we gave it to them 
and preserved our capital to start working on what was the uh, initial version of app.net, which was uh, tools for mobile app developers. Um, so again, like the theme here is really trying to understand distribution and try to figure out how people are going to be using um, social and communications differently if we're all on mobile and we forget about desktop. Like desktop is dead, right? Like everyone's on yeah. iPads now. So I think you have to really rethink all the assumptions that were in place four or five years ago. Um, and, I, and I think when you look at the current marketplace of who's doing what and like what Google launched today at I.O. with their messaging stuff, you're still seeing things shift around to take into account the fact that everyone's going to be using your services via mobile. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was the idea. Well, it becomes more and more uh, not even an option to have a mobile plan. A strategy, I guess, if that's the word you want to use for, like, you just can't approach what the internet is or what the internet has become without some sort of strategy, or even a a desire to to have a mobile experience. Like, it's a must. Well, look, even even if you assume you move the experience over, the business models are totally effed, right? Like, there's not just because you have a great display ad business on the web and you have a great pre roll business on the web. Um, that doesn't translate neatly to mobile, right? There's been huge issues with revenue per user on mobile via advertising. And so, and again, this is what we saw at iMeme where the CPMs that we were getting off the web were fantastic. And our web business, if I separated it out as a business unit, was, was really going great. But the more people shifted to mobile, the less money we were making. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> is it the space, the context? What What is it that, that makes that space uniquely different for ads and display ads and CPM? Um, a lot of folks have written about this. There's a few things at work. Um, some of it is just the mobile space and that users find it intolerable if you put stuff on their mobile device because it takes up the whole screen, um, like interstitials. Um, things like pre-rolls are really terrible on mobile. Yeah. Man, like, I hate when I go to a site and they roll up something that says, go to my app or something like that. I'm like, no, I yeah, just want to read this right? article. Get out of my face. I feel like you're so focused uh, contextually on a mobile device. You're just so focused on your task, whereas a desktop, you have multiple windows open. So yep. you, you tolerate distractions, you know? Uh, also, commerce. Um, a lot of what makes web advertising work is that it legions into a commerce opportunity, Right. Yeah. Um, like if you click into Amazon, you click into something else, you'll buy. And on mobile, people still aren't entering their credit card numbers in mobile like they used to. <laughs> um, it's a pain in the butt. And yeah. so that's the underpinning of a lot of e-commerce advertising, right? A lot of the bread and butter of Google's business is around people purchasing products and and going turning into a lead gen. And that just doesn't people don't buy products the same way on mobile, um, with a few notable exceptions. So. There's, basically, there's a lot of systemic reasons why applying the exact same old ad model to mobile doesn't work. Um, and so, again, this was something that I saw. And you know, I guess sometimes people think, oh, Dalton's that anti-ad guy. He hates advertising. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying I hate advertising. I'm saying advertising is a terrible business model for an infrastructure provider on mobile. It makes no sense, right? <laughs> it's not, man, I really hate ads and they make me so mad, right? It's, it's the wow, this is a really terrible business and there's some obvious reasons why I don't think this is going to create a good user experience in the long run. And so my overall advertising focus is not, let's all rally around the flag that we hate ads. It's, 
let's rally around the flag that we want to create great products that people want to use and we want developers to earn a living. (laughs) And I think this is going to create better products, right? It's not just like, oh, wow, I just hate pre-roll so much. I want to build a different thing. Um, And, you know, again, I don't think people totally get that I've sold, you know, tens of millions of dollars of advertising in my career, right? Like, (laughs) like that was, that was my business. That was, that was how I made a living for years. So yeah, I know a lot about advertising. (laughs) I feel like, um, you know, just considering our time constraint, I feel like there's no way we can fit into e- even the next 13 minutes what I want to talk to you about around what you've done with Ab.net and just everything else that I think is stemming around that. So I almost feel like we should kind of just, not so much just meander, but I almost feel like we should delay that a little bit and maybe sure. have you back and plan to have you back and the... Um, the date I was thinking of having you back, and I don't, we don't have to obviously firm this up now, but just for the listener's sake, I got some other shows lined up, the 22nd and the 29th. Um, so I was thinking like June 5th. I'd love to come have you back on the show. Sure. If we can work with yeah. Ben to line up. Or, yeah, let's uh, schedule it you know. offline. Sure. Happy happy to do it. Um, yeah, I, I just there's just so much to talk about there. I mean, maybe we can preface at least. Maybe we can kind of do a preamble to that conversation in, in as, in so much as, um, at least this is from an outsider's point of view. Um, it seems like you've had this, this, uh, love affair with Twitter, you know, in fact, and the fact that you, you thought it was the best thing ever, you know, you really love the experience. You love what it did for real time, uh, connectivity and all these different things. You just saw, saw the world through it. And you as know, you an saw, API, right? Yeah. Like, if you look at my blog post, so, their office, uh, the IMEAM office was at 139 Townsend. Not that you would know what that is off the top of your head, but it was at this one block in San Francisco, and the Twitter office was probably 200 yards away from us. And, mm. you know, I remember, I remember those guys. Like, I remember Alex Payne, and I remember Jack when he had a nose ring. Like, they were, they were that company down the street. And, yeah. like, I didn't really get it. Like, I didn't get why you'd want to use it. And it was only when I saw what developers were doing with it that I even bothered to create an account, right? Like I didn't create an account right away. My, my user ID was never that low over there. And it was because I had heard about it and I just did, I was like, well, microblogging, yeah, like that's like blogging, but worse. I, like, I didn't, I didn't really get it until. I don't think a lot of people got it really. Right. Until someone sat me down and they were like, no dude, like look at what you can do. Look at all these mashups you can create as a developer. Look at how you can use this for, uh, how you could wire up bots to it. Look at, you know, people started showing me things that developers were building on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. That's like, what opened you up. That's hot shit, right? Like, well, that I mean, was, that we was, didn't talk about your schooling, but that's kind of where you went in schooling. You, you know, you went to, um, I, I did kind of look up. <laughs> Symbolic and, systems, yeah. Yeah, because I didn't realize that it was about uh, just computers and minds. I just, I just didn't didn't know that. So I mean, make fun of me if you want, but. No, no, look, that's a weird Stanfordism. It. Most schools call it cognitive science. It's okay. just the main I would have guy, known that then. The guy who started the program, Terry Winograd, didn't like the term cognitive science for a bunch of reasons that don't matter. And so he decided to name it its own thing. But at most schools, the major would be cognitive, cognitive right. science. With The difference between symbolic systems and cognitive science is there's a lot more programming and a lot more AI. Right. But other than that, it's the same shit. So it's it's... I don't know. Like, I think the name is a little bit contrived. So it's basically cognitive science. Well, speaking of that, um, not long ago, just this last uh, industry radio show, we just had you on there. And we were talking for a bit there about 
Photoshop and designer stuff because the the blog and podcast is founded on this this idea of covering um, design focused startups. So we had you on the show, and obviously you guys are design focused, but uh, you really didn't get into the call until we started talking about hacker stuff. You know, until you sure. started about, talking about uh, developer, and so you know, I'm just kind of comparing that to what you just said about what you thought about Twitter. You really didn't get it until it piqued your interest in terms of how you can develop upon it versus what you could do with it. Exactly. Right. Like that was taking for granted that you had something that looked like their API Yeah, seemed cool to me. And that's when I created an account and that's when I started using it. And that's when, you know, I would tell people to sign up for it. Like, I don't know, like I was actually a, a big proponent of it once I got the API aspects of it. Right. Like I was like, Oh, this is really cool. So like, so when a reporter would ask me an interview, you know, Oh, what do you think is a cool startup that's doing something good? I would, that was usually what I would talk about. And I'd be like, Hey, you guys don't get it, but this API thing they're doing is going to be really big. Right. Like that was, that was one of the things I'd like to talk about. Uh, so at what point did it change then for you? I mean, obviously you, I don't, I can't remember the date. So help me out there, but you mentioned early days of app.net and I wasn't sure how that correlated with, you know, your desire to do maybe something developer wise on Twitter or with the Twitter API. Did those two overlap at all, or is there a point where you you were like, uh, "Forget Twitter, it's it's at dot net." We went to the we went to the Chirp conference, and uh, it was really clear once Jack left that something changed, and like Alex Payne was long gone. Like there was just a bunch of people there that I that I really have tremendous respect for that that got changed, um, and so Chirp was weird. Um, just the tone was weird. I don't know. It's, you just could tell that they were moving in a direction such that you'd be tough to be a third party developer. And so we actually stayed the heck off of it for app.net, um, other than just posting to it. Like there was like, we would never have been building expansive stuff in, in the past three years. Like the, the, there was enough signals <laughs> yeah. that it'd be a bad idea to bet your business on it. Um, that we, we actually stayed away from it. Um, and that's the thing that again is perhaps poorly understood about what we're doing is that, you know, we spent a ton of time on Facebook API right? and that's where a lot of our expertise was. And I was, you know, I was supposed to give a tech talk about Facebook open graph, um, because API and granted that Facebook API is way more complicated. Um, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's what we've been that's what we prior to what we've been doing for the past nine months with app.net we were spending a ton of time on facebook api and that's and that's kind of why i don't want to try and shoehorn that conversation into what you know now might even be like less than five minutes or so it's just (laughs) too big of a conversation because i i feel kind of like that i don't know enough and i kind of use this platform as a way for me to have a reason to talk to someone like you and ask you a bunch of these questions. Cause I could sit down and probably, you know, maybe read a few blog posts that you've written or kind of follow you or stalk you throughout social media and maybe piece some of these things together. But, um, I, I want to know what the misconceptions are of, of app.net, where you're going, why you're going there. Um, and, and the reasons why, you know, you may dislike or like the directions that Twitter was going and maybe the downfalls that they've, they've done. So, I mean, hopefully we can, talk through this some things. I just know we don't have if five minutes is sure. nowhere near enough time to do that. So, um, I would but, just, uh, I would say it's not like or dislike. It's that a vacuum was created. <laughs> so like if, if they're no longer in the platform business, which is cool. And that's what they said. No hard feelings. There is a vacuum. There is an empty spot for creating something that is a platform 
right? That doesn't compete with devs, right? Even if you assume they're doing everything right and their, their strategy is genius, let's just, let's just say that. That doesn't mean there's not a huge opportunity that is now on the table that was just left open for what happens to all the people that want to build clients and things like that, right? Yeah. Like where, where is that innovation going to go, right? Like it has to go somewhere. Like is everyone just going to give up and go home? <laughs> so, so even if you assume their strategy is brilliant, uh, there is a big, it was clear that there is a big hole in the market. And it seems as though Facebook has been going down the same way. And so look, from an API modeling perspective, I think there's a lot of commonalities between the Facebook and Twitter API and that most of the differences between Facebook and Twitter are actually UI decisions made by, by their first-party app developers. And that when you really distill down what a social, you know, what is a piece of social software, the, the primitives or the back end of them are actually the same. And what we think of as apps um, are UI decisions that were made by were made by a developer. Um, do you know what I'm trying to say? That like, yeah, like we're trying to make it make our backend also be in the same way you could build microblogging applications. You can also build Facebook like applications and Instagram like applications and Tumblr like applications and WhatsApp like applications. Right? We're trying to make it where you could squint and hit all those different verticals rather than optimizing to look more like one specific API. Um, because I think, I actually think that that's what's most useful to me as a developer. I want that flexibility. Well, I won't, uh, I won't disagree with you there, but I, I do find it kind of funny that we talked almost an entire hour <laughs> and didn't dive deeply into add.net except for just scratching the surface just this last eight minutes. So if you've been listening this last uh, almost hour now. Uh, thanks for tuning in for sure. Dalton, offline, we'll, we'll line up the time to have you come back. I'm so stoked about having that conversation because I got tons of different questions. And in between now and then, I'm going to come up, come up with even more because now I know if you come back on the show for a part two, we'll get to talk for a full hour about it versus trying to shove it into 15 and maybe even 20 minutes. So Yeah, sounds that'll, good. That, that'll be kind of fun. But um, um Ben did give me a special link. It's join.app.net slash from slash my main handle, which is Adam Stack. So if you are not on app.net right now, you can um, get on app.net for free on their free tier, which we'll talk about when you come back um, and we'll line that up. But if you're not on app.net, shame on you. Uh, there's a link. I'll put that in the show notes for you to do so. But uh, Dalton, where can people find or follow you at since maybe they don't follow you on Twitter? Maybe they follow you on app.net. Yeah, it's just my username, Dalton, uh, D-A-L-T-O-N. And I try really hard to be responsive to pretty much anyone that mentions me. So feel free to say hi. Gotcha. All right. Well, until next time, Dalton, uh, don't go away, but we're going to we're gonna hang up for the podcast. But until next time, can't wait to chat. But uh, if you're listening to this live or even on the podcast, thanks for tuning in uh, every week here, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. <laughs>